Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I won't worry about tomorrow. I'm trusting in what you say. Today is the day. Today is the day. Indeed, today is the day. Uh, so let me just make an observation here quickly here at the outset of the hour. You and me and everyone else, people, people, are seeking to define or discover the answers to really just three primary questions. Uh, those questions are the questions of identity, belonging, and purpose. Who am I? Where do I fit? What in the world am I in the world to do? And so as we look around today and we wonder why there is such identity confusion and um, and so much identity politics, or we wonder why uh, people are gravitating toward nativism or nationalism or some kind of group or posse that is, you know, not positive. Um, And we look at people who are trying to find their purpose in life and failing to do so. Let us have a sense that that is just a wide open call for us as Christians to get out there and till the conversational soil of the day um, and to help people discover their identity in Christ uh, and therefore their their place in the life of God's people and therefore their purpose. Um, and so next up, uh, my next guest, he's a professional Christian. He makes his living writing and singing songs of faith in a band called 10th Avenue North. His name is Mike Donahue, and he's going to share with us the story of his own journey of coming to understand that because of who he is in Christ, he can actually not just find God's will for his life, but God's life for his will. That's up next. Thrilled to be joined today by Mike Donahue from 10th Avenue North. He is now also an author. The book is Finding God's Life for My Will. Mike, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. I'm excited to be here, Carmen. Thanks for having me. So, uh, well, I think we'll start with this. The, the title of the book is provocative, and I read it slowly so that people would hear it. What we are seeking to do is find God's life for my will. Now, we, uh, we're ordinarily used to hearing that turn the other direction, finding God's will for my life. But that is precisely what you're trying to get us to do. Slow down and take a completely different perspective uh, on things. Tell us about the title and what it means. Yeah, I, you're the first person to use the word provocative. I like it. Um, yeah, you know, I've been playing in churches for almost 20 years doing music with my band. And uh, I found that a lot of people like to repeat things over and over and over to the point where it actually begins to mean something totally different than I think what they thought it was meaning, if you know what I'm saying. So like mm-hmm. people are like, what's God's will for my life? And I go, well, it's easy. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for your life. And then, you know, immediately they go, no, 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 that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking for the secret plan, you know? And I go, (laughs) I don't think, yeah, yeah, I don't think God wants to give you a plan because if you had a 10-step plan, you wouldn't need to live by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I think 
God wants to keep you in the dark on certain things because he's really after your heart, you know? So I kind of just flipped the phrase of instead of asking what's God's will, some big secret plan for my life, maybe I just need to start asking where his life needs to change my will. So right there in that, I think you um, you said something that I hope people don't miss, because this is about the reality of who God is and his presence and a moment-by-moment relationship with him as a real entity, as a real person, as a real God. And in our relationships with one another, you know, I don't I don't know what my marriage looks like 10 down 10 years down the road, but I know with whom I am going to be walking in marriage. And I think that's part of what you're trying to provoke us to here. I don't God's not going to give me a plan for my life as if then I can do the plan without him. His presence is the plan, which is the subhead of your book. Right. I liken God to that annoying friend who wants to keep the directions to themselves and sit in the passenger seat while you're driving <laughs> and then give you the next turn when you're it's almost too late to turn and he's like turn right now and you're, you know and you're going god it would be easier if you just plugged in the plan for my life into a gps and god goes well if i did that you wouldn't listen to my voice and that's why we see things in scripture like in isaiah it says you'll hear a voice right behind you whether to the right or to the left you see things like your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? It's not like your your voice is a fl- floodlight to my interstate. You know, God's saying, I want you to actually be with me. So I may wait to give you the next step until it's right upon you. And I feel like when we when we think about who God is as, you know, maybe the father, we we tend to imagine that is somehow different than um, God with whom we walk uh, in the person of Christ as our shepherd, or uh, as as Paul likes to talk about walking in or with the Spirit. And I really feel like in your book, although, you know, I'm, uh, I'm probably pressing it beyond what you in, maybe even intended, but there is this very moment-by-moment uh, moment, um, engagement with the fullness of who God is as, as, as three in one, in, in God's triune reality. And um, I appreciate that it's also written at a level that um, you could have a nine-year-old and an eight-year-old um, advocate for it in the opening page. Yeah, that's right. I had my <laughs> nine-year-old and eight-year-old daughter submit reviews for the book. I love that. Um, a, a bit tongue-in-cheek in that sometimes the whole like Christian fame thing and who's the most famous Christian you can have to promote your product, it just kind of tires me. Um because, you know, I just I want the book, if it's helpful, to stand on its own two feet, you know. Um, and I think, too, just with God, we just most of us treat God like a genie, you know. I mean, that's nothing new. Like, OK, God, I'll put in my prayers and then you owe me X, Y or Z. And uh, yeah, I think I'm constantly on this journey of going, what if God isn't the means to an end? What if he is the end? And, um, you know, I, that's sort of my journey in this book is kind of unraveling the idea of God owes me some great career path and like the greatest treasure I'll ever get, I already have in his presence. I love that. So the only other person, um, who I'm aware of who has had their children do the reviews at the front of the book 
is um, is Darlene Jetch from Australia. It's a worship leader from Hillsong. I just oh it, it yeah. just so curious to me because I I distinctly remember um, I mean asking her that question when we talked about her book and she's like nobody else even asked me about that and so then I'm like well when I saw it in your book I'm like huh see I think this is uh, may, well I don't know two makes a trend so there you go. Um, That's amazing. One of the, I'd, I'd never read her book. I didn't know she oh, did that. That's awesome. Oh, you must. Yeah, you must. It's a. It's definitely a must read. It's excellent. Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, so I want you to take us uh, to your senior year of high school um, because, as as actually Isley points out in her review, there's a car crash in this book. And thus, first of all, the storytelling in that part of the book, I think, is, I mean, it's engrossing. Like, it is, you just sucked me right in. Um, but tell us, uh, because that really feels like, to me, there's a there's a change in you at that point in time. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, yeah, I was on my way back to school one day, my senior year of high school, and my buddy, caught the edge of the road and overcorrected and flipped our car five times at 50 miles an hour. And I got thrown out of the car and I broke my back in two places and broke my face and flatlined five times on the way to the hospital, ripped my ear com- almost completely off, you know, 96 stitches to reattach my ear. And, um, yeah, I, I wanted to share that in the book, um, because, you know, years and years later I write, I want to know a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life. Well, it was that car accident that uh, crippled me to the point where I had to lay on my back for two months. And it was the first time in that moment that I asked for a guitar. Uh, I'd never learned to play guitar to that point. And laying on my broken back, I finally was given a guitar. So I want to know a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life that literally happened to me and is just further proof to me that even in the worst moments, God is working something beautiful out of it. Mm. My conversation partner is Mike Donahue. You know him from 10th Avenue North. You will now also know him as the author of Finding God's Life for My Will. we got to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. God, you don't need me, Continuing my conversation now with Mike Donahue from 10th Avenue North. He is the author of Finding God's Life for My Will. Um, Mike, there's a lot uh, There's a lot in this book that I would just describe as um, kind of confession from a professional Christian about what in the book we call <laughs> capitalist Christianity. But, yeah. um, but, I, but I think that for a lot of readers who... You know, they watch professional Christians get up there on stage or even get up there, you know, on Sunday morning, and they imagine that, first of all, it's easy. And then they imagine that it's um, uh, that it's somehow not commercial. You really address some of that in this book, and I, I really appreciate it. So I'd like for you to just, you know, sort of take us to that intense struggle that goes on inside of you when you go on stage. Yeah, Um you know, and I, I don't think I'm saying anything unique. Uh, I've met enough artists and enough friends that it's not like I'm the only one struggling with this. Uh, everyone I know struggles with, I am here to participate in God's story, right? And things go sideways when I'm made the center of the story. 
right? I find my story in God's, not the other way around. And when you step on stage night after night and get applauded just for showing up to work, that's like a disorienting reality, you know, like your local mailman, your local mailman doesn't have scores of people standing at the mailbox like Jim, 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 you know. No, but I feel like that would be fun. Yeah, we ought to. We ought to, Um, like, right? There's your neighborhood idea to the day. Go stand at your mailbox, and when your postal person arrives, like, give them, like, a shout-out of joy for them having done their job. All right, that's inspiration. I love that. I love that. And uh, I think for us who we talk about God and get paid for it, Mm. I mean— that's really, really dangerous in that sometimes if your job depends on you not understanding something, then you're not going to understand it. And so, like, for instance, a lot of times we talk ourselves into this lie that God really needs our different ministries. God uses our different ministries, but it doesn't mean he needs them. Acts 17 says God isn't served by men's hands if he needed anything. Um, but as like a Christian who like, this is how I get paid and look at all these people who are, have like been affected by what I'm doing. It's really easy to talk yourself into your necessity. And um, capitalistic Christianity, I would say, is a reminder that uh, you're never going to pay back God for the investment he made in you. Like if we're talking in capitalistic terms, God made a way bigger investment in me than I'll ever be able to make in him. And it's actually a really bad investment return strategy for God. You know, he's the greatest and sacrificed himself for the least. So he's never going to make a return on that. And that actually frees me up to go, well, now everything is just gratitude. I was reading in Psalm 50 this morning at the end of the chapter, it says like, God is pleased when we live in the gratitude of grace. That's what he wants for our lives, not a invest-return paradigm. Yeah, I think Paul describes it as this debt of grace I owe, right? Like there's that that language there for us that mm-hmm. we walk in this gratitude every single day um, and we live it out in the world. I, the, the part of the book where you talk about God not needing me um, is, is very – I think it's a really important – um, place of humility and understanding of, of who we are and our role in the kingdom, um, and mm-hmm. that it really is all about the king. It just, I, I really appreciate all that part. Okay, so I'm talking to Mike Donahue. I don't want to forget to tell people uh, with whom I am speaking. Uh, he's from 10th Avenue North. He is the, the author of Finding God's Life for My Will. Um, I loved the part where you talk about the meeting that you and your bandmates had with your wives and families. Um, Share a little bit about that and maybe the motivation behind it and maybe what has changed since then. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably three years ago now. My wife came to me at the end of the year and just said, this, this isn't going to be sustainable because we had our third girl was two at the time. And since we've had a fourth girl, I have four daughters. So uh, <laughs> pray, for, pray for me. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, hey, I've got a family out there uh, who they have four boys. So I'm just now praying for their four boys and your four girls. And right. Like if I if I pray with them in mind that way, like it's just more real for me. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. And I, I, I love to retort because, you know, dudes always go, when are you getting that boy? Are you praying for that boy? And I was like, <laughs> no. no, God gives praying. girls to a family that already has a man. You know what I'm there saying? There you go. That's so nice. Hey. <laughs> I love that. Hey, so I, we're, we were gone a ton that year and we basically decided to basically pull the plug on the band in 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 a sense because we just decided to do like half as many shows the next year because we felt that's what we could live that that's where our family would be healthy so what we usually do with career and family is we go well I have to make this number career wise or this amount of money and then when I make that much money we'll make sure that our family's healthy and instead, we just flipped it around and said, all right, how many shows can we do next year where we'll still be healthy as a family? Okay, let's do that. I was like, how much money are we going to make? Well, we'll see. If we don't make enough money to eat, then we'll just quit and we'll do something else. And that was a really difficult decision to make. Um, and I wrote a song about it called Control, which, of course, ironically, this is just the way God loves to do things. Uh, two years later, that became the most played song on Christian radio for the whole year. And I just it, – it's really convinced me that if God's going to call us to a thing, he will actually provide us a way to do it in a healthy way. But we have to be willing to let go of the way we thought it needed to be. Hmm. I love that. Um, you guys can find Mike uh, all over the place. He is on Twitter. He is on Facebook. He is on Instagram. Mike Donahy. It's spelled D-O-N-E-H-E-Y. You can also find him everywhere at 10th Avenue North. That is online on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram at 10th Avenue North. And if you go to the 10th Avenue North website right now, you can click on Mike's book, which is kind of fun. Um, but you also get this PSA at the top of the page, which says no shame is out now. So we should talk about that, too. Yeah, yeah. Is that an album? Not just yeah, not project? just putting out yeah, John just putting <laughs> out uh, books, but we released a uh, album last week as well called No Shame, and uh, uh, hopefully it's relevant in my writing a book and in our songwriting. Is we really want to forge the way to see a greater level of honesty and a greater mm. level of intimacy. Um, we just, we just really think that what God needs from us is doing better. And I think way before he wants us to do better, he wants us to be more exposed. Mm. You see that in James five, you see that in John chapter three, you just see this like living in the light, right? And living in the light doesn't mean I'm conquering. I'm so awesome. I'm doing the right thing all the time. Living in the light means I refuse to let my secret sins remain covered up. And that's terrifying, but the record, we call it No Shame, um, not like hashtag no shame, shake your finger, no shame, I can do whatever I want, no shame, but um, no more toxic shame. And mm -hmm. toxic shame, it's that voice. It's different than healthy shame. Healthy shame is a gift. It leads us to repentance. It can lead us to depending on other people. It can lead to a lot of beautiful things. But if healthy shame isn't reacted to, it stagnates, and it becomes something called toxic shame. And toxic shame is that voice that cries out in your brain, unredeemable. 
And our record, No Shame, is a is a cry to say there's no such thing. No such thing is unredeemable in the kingdom of God. Amen. Friends, uh, that's Mike Donahue. You can find him at 10th Avenue North. You can also find his book, Finding God's Life for My Will, everywhere books are sold. Uh, we're going to encourage you to uh, give Mike a follow on uh, on social media and give 10th Avenue North a listen. Thank you so much for the book and the conversation. Finding God's Life for My Will. His presence is the plan. Mike Donahue, thanks for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. My pleasure, Carmen. Thanks. Uh, You are at some level what the world needs most today because you are a person possessed of the spirit of the living God. You are a person who is in Christ, abiding in the vine, and through you, God intends to glorify himself through righteous fruit. So be mindful of that today, uh, even as the world seeks to distract you with many, many, many other things. All right, uh, uh, a guy who just never seems distracted is Bruce Ashford. Uh, he's the provost at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, and and he has identified um, a number of what I will call um, rhetorical fallacies. They are actually logical fallacies as well. Um, and and so he doesn't want us to be duped. As people in the culture today, as Christians in the culture today, Bruce does not want us to be duped by the rhetorical uh, tricks that politicians in particular, but others play as well. And so he's uh, joining me next to help us identify, discern, and then not be duped by politicians today. We'll be right back. I can still remember the day I brought home all A's on my report card, except for one B. And my dad wanted to know, why isn't this one an A? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Man, my dad's comment really took the wind out of my sails. It's only natural for parents to want to see their children excel in academics. And there's nothing wrong with encouraging them to do their best. But no one needs to feel like their grades are the ultimate measurement of their worth. Make sure your teen knows she'll always be loved, whether she brings home A's and B's or C's and D's. Don't belittle your son for missing the mark. Ten years from now, no one will ask to see your teen's report card, but your teen will forever remember your love. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Welcoming back uh, Bruce Ashford, among other things. He's a seminary provost. I don't even know what that is, but he is one. Uh, He writes, he speaks, he uh, helps us understand the world in which we live from a Christian worldview, and uh, I appreciate him. Bruce, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be back. Provost is a Latin word that means, may I refresh your coffee, Mr. President? Or something like that. <laughs> nice. Who we kind of hope is not listening right now. Okay. So, um, so don't be a dupe. Okay. So I, I appreciate this. Um, I know you have not t- had time to see uh, my picture posted on Twitter of our conversation this morning. Um, I did see. But, oh, you did. See, you're fast. Yeah, it's man. a good one. 
Oh, thank you. Um, so fallacies are something that I am familiar with because I have a child in a classical Christian education uh, program, and fallacies are something they talk about all the time, right? That's sort of how yeah. we learn to think about what we're thinking about. And so the fallacies are, are a conversation about bad thinking. Am I right? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, uh, there you can either persuade people in ways that comport with truth, or you can persuade them in ways that evade evade or avoid the truth. And we want to do the former instead of the latter. And we're not good at at seeing the distinction. We're not good at recognizing the distortion um, of an argument through one of these, you know, frankly, rhetorical devices. And so I can I can publicly attack you in a way that's just very straightforward and everybody can tell, or I can attack you publicly in a way that until you start nodding your head, nobody knows I've cut it off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, we've, as Americans, have, you know, sat in our homes for hours listening to political talk shows and uh, listening to politicians and sound bites, and it's, it's rare that you find an actual argument with evidence. It's almost always uh, just a... a hurricane of logical fallacies. And I, we could sort through some of those today probably pretty quickly. Yeah. So, I mean, there are dozens, but let's uh, let's just take a shot at a few of them. Um, here's, a, here's a word we sometimes hear. I'm not sure that we all know what it means or can identify it. What is an ad hominem attack? Yeah. Yeah. So the ad hominem logical fallacy is when instead of addressing another person's arguments or views, you just insult them, right? You insult them based on some characteristic it has nothing to do with the matter at hand. You insult their uh, their gender, their race, their intelligence, uh, you know, something like that. So their height, Socrates, their weight, their ethnicity, their viewpoint. I mean, like, right? Anything. Yeah. Oh, why would I listen to so and so? You know, she just a, a moron. Oh, that guy's dumber than a bag of hammers. Don't listen to what he has to say. You know, and you know, while it might be true, so and so might be dumber than a bag of hammers. What you need to do is to persuade why this uh, bag of hammers guy is wrong and give reasons. So, and this one is uh, huge. I mean, on the political talk shows, uh, the highest political leaders in the land will spend a good bit of their time instead of um, making an argument, just insulting the people they don't like. So um, it's interesting that you use that as an example. I was once charged with being uh, not as smart as a bag of ha- a bag of hammers, and um, huh. I replied by saying. Yes, but unlike you, I know how to hit a nail on a head. Oh, nice one. So part of it is like, right, being equipped to respond in ways that uh, that take the legs out yeah. from under the other person in debate. But what you're trying to help us see is as people who are actually uh, sort of on the viewing end, we, we are we are not engaged. We are not the ones necessarily being attacked, although that's important, too, to be ready to uh, mm-hmm. to respond um, but what you're trying to equip us to do is, as people in the culture today, sort of see and understand what politicians are doing in terms right. of these rhetorical devices. Yes, and for us to have integrity. Uh, we don't want to just point out the uh, logical fallacies committed by people in the other political party or the person we disagree with. I mean, that's a, a favorite thing to do, to point out uh, you know, to the specks in other people's eyes and, and defend the planks in our own. And, okay, that uh, takes so us that, to straw man. I think that I think that leads directly to the, this conversation about straw man. What does it mean to set up a straw man um, in a in a debate? Yeah, so the the phrase uh, straw man kind of gives you a picture of uh, it, it, it's an analogy with like a boxing match, right? 
So if I'm going to uh, box against an opponent, let's say his name is uh, Frank, you know, just to pick a name out of, out of the hat, would it be easier for me to box an actual man named Frank or for me to make a straw man uh, that looks like Frank and then uh, box with a, a character made out of straw? Well, it would be a lot easier to just n- knock the socks off of a straw a straw man rather than a real man. And in an argument, the way that happens, it happens all the time. Politicians are very adept at this. What they do is they take their opponent's argument and they make the argument outlandish. They skew it. They make it worse than it actually is. And then they argue against it. And then you get to pat yourself on the back that you just got a knockout victory because you went on such and such cable news network, misrepresented your opponent, and then beat up the misrepresentation rather than arguing against the actual argument. So I feel like uh, that as Christians, one of the things that we're responsible to do um, is know the know the argument of the opposition so well that we could actually present it um, not only fairly, but probably better than they could. Um, yeah, and and yeah. I yeah, I have found that in just in terms of preparation for presenting my own viewpoint to actually be a student of and understand um, the argument that the other person is is either likely to make or should be making if they were going to make their argument well, um, then I know I'm not setting up a straw man. Yeah, that's right. If they could listen to your presentation of their view and say, yep, you described it correctly, uh, you've achieved something, and then you can defeat their argument. Exactly. All right. Uh, Bruce Ashford and I are going to continue this conversation. I don't know. We've got like 13 more to cover in 10 minutes. I, we're not going to do that, but we're <laughs> going to try. So um, so our conversation today is to equip you to not be duped, to actually see through not only uh, politicians' distortion techniques, but, you know, frankly, the distortion techniques that are used in conversation all the time by a lot of us. So we're going to continue that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. We all know that there are literally dozens of people out there trying to sell themselves to us as voters that they might uh, serve as the next president of these United States of America. Sometimes their language is very, very skillfully crafted. Other times they do things which are called gaffes, which uh, means that they have made some sort of rhetorical mistake. Uh, But these are not rhetorical mistakes that we're talking about today. These are actual logical fallacies of some sort where the thinking of the person um, is not right, but we have to be able to discern that. We have to be able to see the distortion in what they're doing. And so Bruce Ashford is helping us do that today. He and I are working our way down a very long list, and we have arrived at the false dilemma. Professor, tell us what the false dilemma is. Yeah, so the false dilemma is when uh, you tell your audience uh, that there's only basically two options, when in fact there are three or four options. For example, um, so I'm conservative, and uh, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, for the past 20 or 30 years, you'll have these arguments that if you if you don't support such and such conservative initiative or particular conservative leader, then you're an enemy of America. Um, and when, in fact, there's actually a number of other options. How about if I, uh, you know, put forth a better conservative alternative? You know, there's another option. So I don't have to do it. Um, Congressman so and so says there's actually a better option. Uh, so, so yeah, false dilemma it happens all the time. It's used probably just about as often as ad hominem and the straw man. All right. And then we have just like basic evasion when somebody is evading the issue. Tell us about that. Yeah. So you watch a politician on television during a debate. And if his opponent scores a good point on him and, and shows a, a weakness in his record or uh, a, a 
a flaw in her past or, or, or whatever. When confronted with that issue, instead of saying, you know what, I didn't do well on that, or uh, you know what, well, here's why I did it, and here's how I'm going to fix it. Instead of confronting the issue, uh, you evade it. You tell a joke, you mock and insult your opponent, you say something sensational. Uh, I mean, you know, all politicians do it. I mean, there's there are uh, humorous versions. Uh, remember the Reagan-Mondale debate that uh, Reagan uh, committed this fallacy. It was, it was funny. Um, the reporter said, Mr. President, your opponent, uh, Walter Mondale, is considerably younger than you. Uh, do you think that, that with the threat of nuclear war, age sh should maybe be an issue in this campaign? And Reagan said, oh, not at all. I'm not going to exploit my opponent's youth and inexperience, which is very funny. And Reagan's my favorite political leader of all time. But he didn't really answer the issue there. He just he made a joke. Um, it's not necessarily wrong to do it. I mean, uh, if you're if, if you want to score a point through humor, but the audience needs to realize, too, that that the person has just evaded the issue they've been confronted with. Right. So in that example, the issue is the threat of nuclear war. And we're just not going to talk about that. Like, right. Just moving on to some other uh, to some and, other and, subject. Yeah. Or his age. He didn't want to talk about his age because this was during his uh, campaign for reelection. And he was actually pretty old at the time. Oldest. Uh, he would be the oldest, I think, uh, elected president. Mm -hmm. I think in the in the history of uh, American, he didn't he didn't want to address it. <laughs> so we may be on the verge of that conversation again in the next cycle. So or in yeah. the cycle we're currently in. Okay, how about a genetic fallacy? What is that? Yeah, so the genetic fallacy, you know, is if you point to the something's genes, if you point to it, if you point to its uh, um, genesis, its source, its genesis. Mm -hmm. Um, and then say, well, such and such can't be any good because it came from so and so. They did that to Jesus. They said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, uh, can anything good come from, you know, California? Or how could you possibly vote for so and so? He's never, you know, he's never been a political leader before. Or how could you vote for this person? They've never built a, an organization from scratch. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so those things are pretty irrelevant. So like, and yeah, where, because of where this person comes from. And I feel like that is that is somewhat related to number one, which is ad hominem. Right. Like I, yeah. you can. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can identify one, you can identify the other. Um, I like this one. I think I know what it is. Guilt by association. Yeah. If you just uh, you find a, a, a political candidate when he's attacking another candidate, we'll just say, well, so and so was it I was, was seen at a dinner with such and such bad person. Or, now, or... let me just tell you, Bruce, I have been seen at dinner with a bunch of bad people. <laughs> I mean, well, let, let me just go ahead and confess that, right? Like I associate with sinners. And so um, if somebody th – this is part of the challenge, I think, when we allow ourselves not only to be duped by these kinds of fallacies, but when we repeat them. And so I yeah. want Christians – I want Christians to kind of wake up to the to the truth of the matter here. Um, you know, every meal Jesus ever ate, he ate with sinners. And so, so, do, so do we. And so this guilt by association conversation is an interesting one. Um, because as Christians, we ought to be out there tilling the cultural soil every single day with people who are not like-minded with us. That's actually what a missional lifestyle looks like. That's what missional engagement looks like. Um, if, I, if I'm only always hanging out with people who not only already, already agree with me, but um, are just simply willing to uh, celebrate and trumpet me, I'm, I am not an effective change agent in the culture. Yeah, I mean, if the Bible is uh, right, and it is, then the only kind of people we could associate with are big time sinners. Yeah, Jesus is all all of Jesus's guilt was by association. All of it. Yeah.
Yeah. Great point. That would be fun. That would be fun to write up. Okay. How about um, two wrongs? Because I like this one, right? I call this, by the way, um, I call this the yeah, but. I don't call yeah. this one two wrongs. I call this the yeah, but. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, if one if a political leader in one party or, or if the congressman in one party do something wrong, then uh, two, three, four years later, well, and, and, and let's say Party A does something wrong. Party B is screaming, angry about it. This is wrong. You shouldn't have done this. Then two or three. Are you pounding your later, desk? Party, Party B does the exact <laughs> same thing. When they get confronted on the hypocrisy of it, they say, but Obama. But Trump. I can hear but you pounding Clinton. your desk. It's hilarious. Yeah. We need, and it's a, it's a really it's really a, it, you know it's it's a fallacy that when we commit it when we're willing to c- continue committing it unrepentantly it makes us hypocrites. It's what we're saying is it's uh, we're going to have two sets of rules. One set of rules we're going to hold the other party accountable with, but when our guy does it, uh, we're not going to hold him accountable because he's just you know giving back to the bad people what they deserve anyway. And uh, that's that's unacceptable. We can do better than that. It's a sign of weakness. That we can't, if we, we can't hold to our own uh, framework that we judge other people by. All right. Uh, we probably have time for one more because I, I, I love this list and we, we might have to return to this on another day because uh, I do think that helping people identify um, these fallacies are really, really helpful. None of us want to be duped by politicians or anyone else. Um, so let's talk about chronological snobbery because I, I, th- I see this happen a lot. Yeah, this is uh, this fallacy is directed against Christians all the time. Listen, it's like, you know, listen, religion is outdated, outmoded. We've evolved past it. In fact, it holds people down. It causes problems. I mean, this was the Bible was written by people thousands of years ago who lived in tents, you know, and we've 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 moved past that. The Bible's teachings on gender and sexuality were written in another era in another time. They're out, outdated. People uh, today should recognize that they're actually bigoted and hateful. Uh, the Bible's moral teachings. And so chronological snobbery is, is fallacious. If you want to defeat the Bible's ethical teachings, show why they're actually wrong. Make an argument rather than just uh, dismissing them. All right. So we got, we have listeners saying, where where Carmen, where are you getting this list? I want to read this. I want to digest this. Da, da, da. Well, that's Bruce and I, um, we are working on that. He's either going to write it or I'm going to steal it and write it. Um, and uh, and then I've got another uh Another uh, person writing in says, uh, I've got a 12-year-old son trying to learn logic from a Christian perspective. What do you got any ideas and resources to recommend on that? All right, I am going to highly recommend um, Bruce's book, Letters to an American Christian. Absolutely. I am also very comfortable as a parent recommending something called Fallacy Detective. You can check it out at fallacydetective.com. We have used it in our family with kids. It's a great way to uh, help them understand what these fallacies are. If you're an adult... Read uh, Bruce's book, Letters to an American Christian, where he unpacks a lot of this. And I am hoping there will be some sort of forthcoming series of articles on the topic as well. Yes, Dr. Ashford, maybe? Maybe? Yes, definitely. Yes, I, mean, I, 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 owe, uh, I owe an article to LifewayVoices.com, and I think it's going to be this one if I can get my act together and uh, and write it. And if not, right, maybe fantastic. you can co-author it. I love it. All right. Hey, Bruce Ashford, we love having you on. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. We'll be right back. All right. uh, Repeating myself, uh, Letters to an American Christian. That's by Bruce Ashford. Highly recommend that. Uh, And then Fallacy Detective, if you're looking for something for kids. All right. That's all the time we got today. I love you. Have a great day. God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.